Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. When you're going in to pitch to someone, you're not going to beg for money. Um, it's a fair exchange. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, you learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to perform market research at a trade show, how to identify which advice you should take and which you should ignore, and why you shouldn't pretend to be bigger than you are. Today, I'm joined by Hannah and Mark Lim from Lola Land. Lola Land makes modern infant and toddler goods that are functional and fun and was started in 2010 and based out of Monrovia, California. Welcome, Hannah and Mark. Hi, Felix. Thanks for having us. Hi, Felix. Hey, so yeah, tell us a bit more about the the idea behind the business. How did you guys come up with this this company, essentially? So I had just had a baby and um, I was a stay-at-home mom at the time. I quit my teaching job and Mark was working full-time and also attending business school at night and um, I just, you know, it was really out of necessity. My daughter was one of those kids that just hit every milestone really late. And the sippy cup, like transitioning her to a sippy cup was a real challenge for me. Um, and I thought, you know, why isn't there a cup that is just easy for kids to use, easy for moms to clean, sort of eliminates challenges for kids and and is looking cute at the same time. So I told my husband about the idea and he said, listen, you know, flush it out. You're at home. Think about um, the design and the business of it and whether it would sell. And by the time I graduate from business school, if we still think it's a viable idea, we'll just both dive right in and go for it. Mm. So how much time, you, know, you kind of just talked about this very quickly. It sounds like it's much longer than, than the way you described. How long did it take between coming up with the idea and kind of like fleshing it all out into essentially what sounds like a business plan? Um, I'd say from the day we had the idea to um, the day we sold our first Lala Cup was probably almost two years. Got it. Now, what was happening during this time? Like when you, when you, when people are you know out there listening and thinking about starting a business, they have an idea. What steps did you know you needed to take to get a good understanding of whether it will be a you know a good business idea or not? You know, I think in hindsight, we probably should have done more homework, but um, it was really understanding that you have a product that's different from what's out there. Um, and knowing exactly what that difference is. And, you know, I, I guess you can never really know if there's a market for it, but just, you know, making sure that there's something unique about what you're selling because it's all about the story and the product. I mean, we did, have. we did a, a good amount of homework. We went to the the biggest baby trade show in Las Vegas and we pretended to be buyers I and mean, maybe not the most <laughs> ethical step, but you know, we, <laughs> we found a friend who had a store and we said, Hey, can we just like go as part of your team? And we walked around and got to see what the landscape looked like. Um, we talked to buyers. We, we asked, Hey, this is the concept that we're coming out with. Is this something that you would consider? Which, you know, at the end of the day you get a lot of, Oh yes. And then a lot of nods and like, that's a good idea because they don't mm-hmm. want to hurt your feelings. But um, but we did, we weren't afraid to ask and ask around. Um, I, I do think that we could have asked a lot more business owners um, for advice. And now that we know people are just so willing to share information as as well as we are, 
Um, I think at the time we just felt bad. Oh, you know, we're, we may end up being competition. So of course no one wants to talk to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not true. Um, there's a lot of people that are very happy to kind of, um, give some information and knowledge. Uh, but yeah, during that time, Hannah, I mean, I, again, I was work at work and full time. I mean, a, a business school student. And then Hannah had her hands full with the, with the baby and all and trying to flesh out this plan. But, you know, um, she wrote a really good business plan and it really helped us kind of frame everything on, on where we stand and who exactly was our target market. And it also helped us secure a small business loan. So uh, all that kind of took about, you know, 12 to 18 months. Mm. I, I like that you both went to a, a trade show. You went somewhere in person to do this research. And a lot of times when people are sitting down and trying to run through these ideas and trying to validate which one they should pursue, the immediate kind of reactions to go online and do some research that way. But you d- decided to go to a trade show and do that. What kind of benefits do you find or did you find going to a trade show that you don't think would be available if you were just doing your research, I guess, remotely, you're like online or reading you know, publications? Uh, there's so many, um, you know, it's hard to tell. I mean, again, a lot of trade shows facade, but you know, you see a company and you go to the trade show and you're like, Oh, this little cute little whatever product. Okay. That's great. And then all of a sudden you see that they have a 30 by 30 Island booth with, you know, this great structure and you're like, Whoa, they're a lot bigger than Mm -hmm. we had ever imagined. And vice versa. We, we see companies that were like, Oh my gosh, this guy, this company must be, you know, doing like $50 million in revenue and you go and it's just a team of two and you're like, Oh, maybe not. And you know, of course looks can be deceiving. Um, but it gives you some kind of gauge of, of where people stand and how things are. And so I, you know, I'm glad we went to trade shows. I wish we went to more and talked more. Mm, so it kind of pulls back the currents a bit by going to these trade shows. Absolutely. Right. And, and I think going in person, um, you know, the whole point of trade shows is they preview products that are coming up in the future. Mm -hmm. So for us to kind of get that preview of like, what are we going to be really competing with in the next six months to a year? Um, that was invaluable. Uh, I think another thing is you just get a general pulse of, you know, I mean, if you are at a trade show and there's no foot traffic and no one's there, I think that, you know, it might be a little off-putting or you start to wonder and ask yourself, is this industry even thriving? Mm-hmm. So what did uh, the both of you learn coming out of this? Do you remember some things that you learned that that actually had impact on how you wanted to create the products or how you wanted to market or design the company? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I would say, well, first of all, one of our com- like competitive advantages was being made in USA because we didn't see a lot of plastic feeding items that were made in USA, but no real way to confirm that. Obviously, at the time, 2010, it wasn't as Amazon heavy and as like crazy online presence. Like there, there were still plenty of companies that barely had a functioning website, if you could believe it or not. Um, yeah. So yeah, to see if our kind of things that we thought were a competitive advantage, to see them live and see if they were there. I mean, I wanna. I don't want to give us too much credit, but we were one of the first in as far as gear goes that packaged it kind of like a premium item, uh, kind of like a gift. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of times, gear, cups, pacifiers, and whatnot—they're very sterile and very almost like you bought them at a hospital gift shop or something like that. 
So we went the other way and said, no, this is an experience. This is a gift. And people are wanting to buy into this feeling of, okay, this is a high quality item and it's, it's a very boutique. And so we really, really pushed the envelope on, on design. And then when we came out shortly after you saw a lot more companies kind of do similar things. And I'm not claiming that we're a pioneer, um, but you know, it wasn't as prevalent when we first mm-hmm. came out. Yeah, certainly a competitive advantage like you're talking about. And and I think you were mentioning how when you, you're able to identify what's unique about your the particular products that you want to release. Now, when you know these things, like you know about what's different about your company, what's different about your products, how do you, I guess, piece it all together in terms of whether customers will care or not? How do you know what's, what actual differentiators, what uniqueness, what features the end customer is going to care about? Mm-hmm. You know, for us, it was, honestly, when we were first starting out, it was really going on sort of that gut instinct and mm-hmm. intuition, um, sort of what I, as a consumer, was looking for is what I designed the product around. Um, however, I think it's really, this is where doing the footwork or legwork really comes into play because, you know, once I had my first prototype that was packaged, I really, I, I just put them in my trunk and I started driving out to the hottest stores in Los Angeles. Like I remember walking into Fred Siegel and, you know, asking to meet the buyer and show it, I showed it to the sales associates and I said, what did, what do you think? Like, can I leave it on your counter and see if anyone responds to it? Um, just really getting it out there and, you know, putting your product out there and just, gauging people's honest responses. Mm. Well, what did you learn from that? What did you, when you were going out to meet these buyers and you were leaving your products for uh, foot traffic to see, what did you learn about, again, the products or the way that you wanted to uh, build the business? I think what I learned was that how important, at least in our space and our category, how important the packaging was for our for us. Um, so we sort of took a chance with packaging. We had heard from sort of big box buyers like, oh no, you need to have a box that hangs perfectly on a wall with a plastic window. And we, we sort of pushed the envelope on that. Like we took inspiration from a brown paper bag, you know, lunch bag shape. And we made a play on that and only had a tiny little window where the face of our cup peeked through. And we really thought, you know, this is a practical item. Yes, it's a sippy cup, but why can't it be a fun gift or, you know, that type of thing. So once it got to, once I put it on the counters at retail stores, I think that really, um, it caught people's attention Mm -hmm. and colors came, a lot of what we chose as our company colors were really important because, you know, within the baby space, it's a lot of, sort of pastel blues and pinks and ivories. And we just went really bold with bright yellow and red. And um, so I really learned that people were responding to that. You know, it wasn't that you had to go with what everybody else was doing. Yeah, I mean, certainly if you wanted to blend in, you should go with what everyone else is doing. But it sounds like you wanted to make a pop and make people recognize that, oh, there's something different here. Let me take a closer look at it. Now, you, I like that approach of putting the products on these counters, going to these stores and seeing if you can do that. Was it? Did you have a pretty good, I guess, assess rate with uh, stores allowing you to just leave your product with them? 
Absolutely. I mean, in the beginning, you know, again, the buyers are usually in an office upstairs and it's the sales associates on the floor. And I just said, you know, listen, can I leave this on the counter? If it sells great, like, please tell your buyer. And I'd say, um, you know, of the ones that allowed me to leave a sample, I had a very high success rate. But that's not to say that every time I walked into a store, you know, it, it was tough. Like, I got the door shut on me many, many times. Um, but of the ones that did allow me to leave the package, probably 75% gave me a call back. Oh, wow. I, I mean, I have to add that it, it's definitely a long game. Um, a lot of the things that Hannah had reached out earlier, it it wasn't right away. Um, some of them took several years, actually. Uh, she went on a trip to New York um, for seven days. And our plan was just go to every, every Manhattan boutique in Brooklyn and just knock on the door and just go in there. She came home with nothing, like not a single purchase order or anything, but eventually every door that she went down within three years, eventually bought our product. And it was, Oh, I remember you guys, you guys stopped by. Oh yeah. I see you at the show. And then the next year, Oh, you're still here. Oh, okay. And then the third year, okay, great. Like I'm ready to work with you. I've heard this same scenario play out from other brands, other stores too, where they kind of want to see, can you last? Can you stick around long enough? And if they hit you, if you hit them on kind of multiple touch points at trade shows, on, you know, on publications, they see you in person, like all of that kind of helps them almost get reassured that, oh, this is a legit company. They're going to last. They have products that are in demand. Otherwise, why would they be around? And then they invest in you. They're willing to kind of take that as obviously less risky, you know, once they've seen you around for a while. So I do agree that it's definitely a long game. Uh, now I want to take a kind of a step back and back to developing this actual product. So once you understood that there was a market, there's an opportunity, there's a market opening for, for you guys to come in, what was that product development process like? How did you go about creating the actual product that you would be leaving you know, at, at retailers? You know, I always tell people that I actually did legitimately start this business on Google because I had no idea. I remember my first Google search being how to manufacture plastics. <laughs> um, I mean, it was so rudimentary. I had no idea what the lingo was. And, you know, as any search does, it sort of leads you down a rabbit hole. And I figured out, oh, it's it's called injection molding. And, oh, in order to do that, you need a CAD file. Um, and who's supposed to make this CAD file? So it, you know, it really was a very organic process for me. And um, what I ended up doing was just reaching out to people locally because it was people I could access easily. I could meet them face to face, um, sort of learn the ropes. So my first step was I actually just found a bunch of plastics manufacturers in Southern California. And yes, they were not close, but, you know, every day I would drive out to one and just knock on the door and say, hey, you know, do you ever work with small businesses or startups? And I just, you know, took every bit of information I could learn from anyone. And that's how it all pieced together. And, and from there, I realized, okay, I need to hire an industrial design firm or an industrial designer to help me with the actual design of the cup. Um, I am in no way an artist or an engineer. So, you know, then I started reaching out to those people and, 
that's how it all happened. Mm-hmm. Now, this sounds like a could get a, become a very expensive uh, project early on before you have any sales, before you have any purchase orders, anything that sounds like a lot of investment early on. Was that when you turned to the small business loan or did you have that already? When did you decide that we need some capital to get this thing going? So we invested $100,000 of our own money and we were able to secure another 100000 as a small business loan. Um, it's borderline crazy what we did, to be honest. Um, the mold itself was close to 140, 150 grand. Wow. Uh, it's cause it's a U.S. made mold. We didn't know any better. I mean, the thing is, I'm not sure how much we would have done it differently, but we did not have any connections in China. We weren't willing to take the risk of it not really working out and come to find out that it's not that huge of a price difference if you're exporting a mold, uh, meaning a lot of Chinese factories like to amortize their mold costs, so th- so they'll entice you to to use them as a factory. So, you know, if the mold might cost them sixty grand, they'll charge you twenty, but they'll roll the price into the part mm. so that you can pay it back. Whereas if you know that you're going to export that mold and you're not going to produce with their factory, they'll probably have a pretty big premium. So, given all that. You know, it, at the time, we, we said, okay, we went to the trade show, we did our homework, we wrote our business plan, we talked to buyers, we talked to customers. At some point, you're going to have to take a leap of faith. Um, that leap was pretty big for us. Uh, kind of crazy, to be honest. But we we did it, and luckily, we were able to kind of pay it, pay it all off, and it kind of worked out in the end. Um, not sure how quickly I would have been able to do that now, but that's just because I know more. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's funny, you hear from entrepreneurs all the time about how if they were any less naive, they might have never gotten started, right? You kind of exactly. have to only know <laughs> enough to get going, but not too much that scares you from going with it. Um, now, so this is, you got the injection mode and you got all of this ready to go. This was, I'm assuming, done prior to leaving the products at the, the retailers or did you have early prototypes? Or what, where was, was the finished product already ready to go when you were leaving these uh, products at the retailers? Yeah, they were finished. This is not, we weren't, to get a 3D model back then was like a grand. So it wasn't, it's not like now where you're just like, you can go to Staples and get a 3D model of something for, <laughs> for $25. It just was not like that. To get even a really junky looking SLA model that wasn't painted um, was kind of quite expensive, especially for a young startup. So when we decided on the, we showed mock-ups, we showed pictures, but after we decided we're going to go through with it, um, we just went for it. Uh, yeah, I, I think we would have been a lot more into the 3D models now, but <laughs> you know, it is what it is, and that's that's why we just took a leap of faith. Yeah, but you know, I think another thing is, you know, I, leaving a 3D model or a prototype with a buyer or a customer is a dangerous thing, in my opinion, because again. That I think it tends to make people wonder if you're ever going to deliver. Like, is this ever going to mm-hmm. actually become a real thing? So, um, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure what the right answer is. Well, yeah, there's there's also a, an advantage to say, when are these ready? Now. They're in my garage now, and I can ship you tomorrow. Um, there's this kind of, I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is aspect to it. And so that really... That kind of really helped. Also, our flexibility, we knew some of our competitors, they're a little bit larger. They have three PLs. They have all this infrastructure. We didn't. So 
You want to order one red and seven green and three pinks? No problem. We'll make it happen. You know, we'll package it nicely for you. Whereas other brands, they kind of have a system like you have case packs, you have set minimums, you have all. No, we don't have any minimums. In the beginning, just get it on your shelf and prove it and validate it. And that sometimes that kind of, you know, it doesn't sound like a competitive advantage to someone, but it, it really is that flexibility. Um, the willing to say, I'll ship you within an hour as long as UPS is still open. And so, you know, we use that to our advantage because we're a little bit more nimble and mobile mm-hmm. than our competitors. Makes sense. Now, when you are leaving the products with the buyers at, or at these on the counters, the you know, I guess the ultimate feedback is to from the call you back and want to order more. Uh, what else? What, what else could they provide you? What other kind of feedback are you getting from these retailers after you know placing your product with them? You know, I think <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because the feedback you always have to take with a grain of salt because, you know, we would get feedback like, oh, this is great. I love the sippy cup. It's selling really well. Um, do you think you could add now a bowl? Well, you know, it's <laughs> first of all, I, you know, every buyer, I think, and customer has a suggestion for you. Mm-hmm. And you really have to be, I think, very deliberate about what your next launches are and say, listen, like, or be very forthright and say, I mean, for, for years, we only sold the Lala Cup and we said we don't have plans to make new items yet. So, you know, that's that. How do you say no, though? How do you get, what's like a lesson that you learned that you were saying yes to often and you're catering or customizing too much for, for, for customers? Or did you know to say no right off the bat? Yeah, it takes discipline to say no. I, I Before I did this, I had a small t-shirt venture and I made the mistake of listening to every buyer and they said, hey, Mark, if you added these men's polos to your t-shirt line, you would rock it. Like, trust me, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. And this wasn't just one, but there's several buyers. And so we sunk in $75,000 in this whole polo program. It didn't sell. We sold like 2%. And I was like, what happened to you? You were going to order this. Mm-hmm. Well, we changed our minds, you know, and it's just so easy to say, but you really have to fit it in so that we, we I mean, it was a huge lesson learned for me. Like you have to say no sometimes, or you have to say, no, this is what we have. This is what we're offering. You're either a partner or you're not. Right. Now, now, how do you know which advice then to take when you're, you know, people always say the most valuable feedback comes from your customers because, of course, they're, you know, paying for these products at the end of the day. But how do you get good at recognizing what kind of advice you should listen to and which ones, you know, like you're saying, take with a grain of salt? Right. For me, it's definitely has to be a direct 100% hit as far as you are our target market because sometimes a mom or, or a parent will say something, but when you really kind of break it down, you're like, oh, but they're not exactly our target. They have great ideas, but it's not really exactly who we're chasing. So you kind of have to distinguish that. If it's if it's a parent that you know will live with our brand and be a part of our brand for a long, long time, and she's one that we're chasing, then you, it weighs a little bit more. Uh, and that goes for our wholesalers too. So if the wholesaler has a store that carries a lot of our target market, then we, we kind of weigh that a lot more. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's a combination of understanding what makes sense. I guess it it helps more, I guess, at retail than anything. But, you know, when you start to expand your product line, like, look, you have, you built this distribution, you put in a lot of work to get these people to buy this sippy cup that's giftable. Now, what could you put side by side with that, um, 
and what would make sense? Like what customer, what would they want to add on to this? And, um, and, and that happens in the online space too. We, we, you know, we have a very small product offering, but you know, when people come to our website, because they have heard of the Lala cup or something, they tend to poke around and say, Oh, you know what, these dishes or these plates, like they match the cup. And now I want this too. And just, um, really get grabbing that customer and maintaining their attention and, that space that makes sense. Mm, makes sense. Okay, now once you've had this uh, this success, this early success with these retailers, what was next? So how did you decide? How did you got? What was the next big step? Like, what was the next way to scale up the business? Mm, we're still figuring that <laughs> no, out. <laughs> a lot of a lot of lessons learned here. Our, our initial, and I'm not sure we would have done it differently, but our initial kind of goal was to really be in these brick and mortar independent specialty boutique business. Um, we weren't thinking tar- Target or Walmart or anything really mass branded. We wanted to live in the space where things were a little bit more premium, a little bit more kind of curated. Um, but as you know, the landscape has changed really fast. And, you know, it's funny. The questions that we got in the first two, three years of our businesses, do you also sell on Amazon? And sometimes people would say, oh, no, no, no. Or, we're not sure yet. We're still trying to figure it out. And now it's it's an absolute given. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that direction is where scale can really happen for us um, to really be a little bit more strategic with our Amazon sale, not just, oh, here it is. It's just available to buy. but And also our direct-to-consumer portion of our business because, uh, let's face it, that's where our customers are going. Um, mm-hmm. But but our, our buyer, our kind of buyer relationships are extremely important to us and they've been there from the beginning and we really, really do still value them. And, you know, I, I'm not sure if this is like a cyclical thing, um, but I think our, our challenge to scale has been that because our focus was so heavy on a brick and mortar business that is kind of on its way on a downturn. How's that? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been, I think that's been kind of, um, I think we should have kind of really seen the signs a little earlier and, and acted uh, more deliberately upon that. But, um, but you know, we're learning. We're we're trying to right there. Yeah, most of this business has just been built on just hustling and getting into these retail stores. When when did you turn? When did you guys decide to put more emphasis on the direct to consumer? The I guess the online store itself. You know, it probably wasn't until about our gosh, three or four year mark that we really started to focus on becoming more quote multi-channel, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we were, again, we were launching in a premium space. And so what we were really looking for was press validation, like being in those top stores. Like when we landed Barney's New York and started seeing our cups in celebrities' hands, we were like, wow, you know, we have that social proof now. Um, And we really leverage that to expand into the online space as well. Um, but you know, it's, it's funny. I think what's been a challenge for us is that it changes so fast. Like I remember the first time we designed our website, we thought, wow, it looks beautiful. And then not just like two years later, you know, people were saying, wait, but your website's not responsive now. And, And we thought, um, what does that mean? I mean, that wasn't even in our wheelhouse at the time. <laughs> and, um, and, and Shopify has made it super easy. You know, yeah. before we had 
really just gone from scratch. We weren't even using a platform like Shopify and, and just making those moves, calculated moves has been huge for us. Mm-hmm. Now you, you mentioned uh, that the, the focus early on because it was a premium product was on validation and social proof. How, how did you come to that realization that that was going to be, I guess, almost a prerequisite if you wanted to compete in that space? I think social proof has, I mean, the, the terminology has changed from them now till then. But um, back then, I mean, we used, there's a, a little teether called Sophie the Giraffe that was hugely popular when my first child was born in 2007. It was one of those like it toys that, you know, Tom Cruise and <laughs> her, his daughter was holding. And we thought, and that's sort of what we modeled our sippy cup after. We're like, it's it's a necessity, but it's, it's almost this affordable luxury that, mm-hmm. you know, for $20, you too could be holding what the celebrities are holding. So that was, um, I mean, we just, at the time, I think when we were launching us weekly had, I don't know, six pages of celebrities, kids and what they were wearing and what they were holding. And so that was just sort of, it happened naturally. Like we felt like if we really wanted to carve out a space for ourselves, like that's where we had to be. Um, and now that's translated to, you know, just having a mom post on Instagram, that's social proof. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a celebrity anymore. Mm. Now, when you were getting the celebrity uh, you know, proof, I guess, social proof that way, were you active in getting that or were people just, these celebrities just discovering your products uh, organically? Uh, it's a little bit of both. I mean, we did have a public, a small boutique public relations company help us um, get it into hands of editors and, and, you know, gift guides, like people gift guides and daily candy. Well, daily candy is no longer, but, and all those kind of little things. Um, but I think most of our celebrity kind of following was kind of natural because it was at Barney's New York, Fred Siegel and, you know, Nordstrom. And so those are the, those are the places where they buy it. So it, it did come pretty naturally, but I'm not going to say that we didn't try to send some of our products to, you know, the celebrities agents and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And now you're saying that the focus for you guys today is more on, I guess, the local celebrity, the people that are have a following online, but you might not see them in like in a magazine. What's the what's the been? I guess what's changed in your approach to to get access to those influencers? You know, I think now what I think about and just observe, we have a lot of friends and family members who are having babies, and it just seems like word of mouth is gold these days. You know, you you can't underestimate the power of word of mouth. And, um, that's what changed because, you know, whereas five, six years ago, people were really trying to do what celebrities are doing now. You know, it's just about the conversation you're having or what the mom next door is obsessed with. And, um, I think that's what create caused the shift. Mm. What do you think then is like required? And maybe I don't want to use the word formula, but what's the ingredients that you need to that you need to have in order to to generate this positive word of mouth for your your products and your brand? Because one of, one of those things that you can't really push, right? But it sounds like you need to have things in place in order for people to want to talk about your products. Right. I think. Um you know, and again, this is a little hypocritical because I don't think we do enough of it, but you can't underestimate the power of just asking. I mean, asking people to share in, I mean, even incentivizing them. I know now in our post-purchase emails, um, we include user photos of like how our products 
look in the home and in like a, a baby's hands. And like, this is what's being shown on Instagram. And, you know, I don't know. I think it, it does entice people to share just to see that others are doing it. Um, so I guess modeling as well. Mm, that makes sense that if they are seeing that others are sharing the photos because you're sending them photos that people have shared, they might be encouraged or might think, oh, I can think well, I can share this too. Because especially if you have a product that is you know premium or like you're calling affordable luxury, people like to showcase that, hey, I can have these nice things too. So I think uh, having a product like yours is also almost required that it has to be something that people want to share. It has to be a product that is interesting enough for people to want to share that looks cool, that looks you know cute and they want to share. So I think that's also a prerequisite that you have a product like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you even look on our website now and on each of our product pages, we do have sort of a live curated Instagram feed, um, just even during the shopping experience, really bombarding them with like, look, like people are using this stuff and join the, join the, um, group. So, and yeah. also I want to, I want to add to this because Hannah does all of our social media stuff and we get solicited a lot. Um, we, there's, obviously partners that we want to kind of see if we could figure something out together, but we also get solicited a lot. And, and one thing that I think we do to her credit is kind of not pick and choose our partners and it has to be really aligned with our branding and our kind of vision. And so while some of these companies or bloggers or Facebook influencers are great and have a massive following it doesn't quite match uh, exactly what we're going for. And even though we might get some some pickup, um, we politely decline. And we so it's kind of I don't want to use the word sellout because I think that's that's a negative approach to something that's, you know, happening great to some certain companies. But mm -hmm. I think because we stay true to our branding when we do make approach to someone say, hey, can you work with us? And obviously they look through our timeline to see, OK, what's this company about? they see that we don't just chase anyone and everyone that's willing to kind of spread the word. Um, I don't know if that's a, a total business sound move, but yeah, you know, an influencer gives away Huggies diapers and, you know, Avent bottles like every other week. Well, while that's great and she appeals to millions and millions of moms, that's not our mom, you know? And mm -hmm. so we don't have feature her on our, on our timeline and it's not because they're bad or their business is bad. It's just, it just doesn't really match with us. So it's kind of that discipline to kind of stay true to who you are that helps you curate more relationships, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head, though, that it's it, you might not see those bumps that you would get from working with anybody, but it sounds like a much better long-term brand-building approach to be selective in who you're working with, what you're showing, because even if you aren't bringing in these customers that you would have access to by working with larger influencers, you're also not diluting your brand and your messaging with your kind of core group of you know, the moms that you're going after. So I think that there is definitely a smart business decision, especially for a long-term like brand building and play that, that, that is obviously working well for you guys. Um, now I want to talk a little bit about the your experience on Shark Tank, of course. So this, this I actually remember seeing you guys on Shark Tank even before uh, we ever start talking about bringing you onto this show. So, and I thought it was a very interesting product as well. Now talk to us about that experience. I kind of give the the background a bit. You guys came into the show looking for, I believe, hundred thousand dollars for fifteen percent equity in the company. Talk to us about what happened. Like what 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 uh, what, what was the end result of being on the show? 
So yeah, wow, so many years ago. Um, but we were huge fans of the show early on when only a couple million people were watching it at the time. And we kept saying in our heads, you know, I think we would do great here. Um, and it happened to be casting right in Los Angeles. So we went through the whole journey. Uh, we ended up giving 40% of our company for $100,000. Now, I think, um, kind of keep in mind that we had only been in business for three months. We've only been shipping for three months at the time. And I think, you know, we did ask, is there any way we can come next season? Because we like to kind of have more traction and validation of our company. So that would help us with our valuation. They said, nope, you are one of 30,000, you know, being selected to come through. It's an hour or never. And so we felt we did feel a little pressure, but that's okay. I mean, um, at the end of the day, when Hannah and I decided to take this deal, we said, look, no matter what, we're leaving with a deal. And so did we give up a little bit more than we had initially planned? Yes. We still maintain control and we have great relationships with Mark Cuban and Robert Herjavec. Um, Our Rolodex is now chock full of great, great contacts. And so if and should, if this thing doesn't work out for for whatever reason, um, we know where we have a good foundation to maybe try again or do something else. And so that was kind of really the main reason why uh, we went through how it went through. Mm, so you, you were coming onto the show, you were saying that we need to get a deal no matter what because it opens up all these opportunities and it wasn't so much about the cash investment that you could be able to get right away. Yeah, because there's, there's shark tank valuation and then there's you know real valuation. I, I think... We could have got a lot more capital um, for a lot less equity with any other with a few other partners who were kind of interested in investing in our company. But what we wouldn't get is that insane amount of press and coverage, mm-hmm. um, the 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 just complete validation um, in the public eye. We wouldn't have a partner who has relationships globally all over the world with just a phone call. Um, so that's kind of what we're looking for. Someone that can really, really swing a big bat if, if push came to shove. Yeah, that, that's a good point that it's not just about how much you know, cash they're willing to invest, but you, you, can't, you can't put a, a dollar value on the relationships that you're able to, to build from being on the show, just from the, the kind of press that you're getting, the press that comes after, uh, after being on a show like that, and of course, the connections with these investors. Um, now, you mentioned, uh, you know, of course, Mark and Robert. Do you remember, I guess in your opinion, what is like the, some, some of the best, I guess, general business advice that, that they've given you that's helped your business? One thing that I think Mark Cuban gave me early on was because I was handling the social media. And again, three months in, I, it was really, we came on the scene and I, we were trying to appear to be this big corporation. Like there was no sign of Mark and Hannah aside from, you know, doing the sales, door to door sales. And you know, after the show and after working with him, he was like, that's not what it's about. Like a lot of people want to resonate with the company owners and know your story. And, you know, don't be so like, don't put up this front that you're trying to be this big company with it. Cause you're not. And, um, that was really invaluable to us because once he's told us that and we tried it, it just, I mean, it really helped us connect with our customers, um, listen to what they were saying and, 
you know, just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you mentioned in, in, I think the pre-interview notes or questions about how you guys try to keep your marketing as organic and personal as possible and to try to tell your story in, in an organic and personal way. Can you say more about this? Like, what are some examples of things that you've done to try to really get intimate with your, with your audience? One thing is, I think I struggle with, um, with Instagram in particular, um, you know, it's, you're constantly trying to put content out there and I try to balance it out with, um, you know, sort of the staged professional photography and your everyday. And I think what's unique about our industry is a lot of parents, they, want to chuckle and see a photo and chuckle about the reality of parenthood and, you know, all its mishaps. And so I think, um, you know, one example of the way I keep it organic is just that like some days I, you know, I have this beautiful photo of our product in an Easter basket. And then the next day it's like the total mess in my dishwasher of all our products and, um, you know, just keeping it light and whimsical and really showing what your everyday is like. I think also Felix is um, it's kind of a hard thing to overcome for some entrepreneurs, but just being vulnerable, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, from the very beginning, our willingness to be vulnerable to say, hey, you know, we messed up your order. We're really sorry. We'll make it up. We're, we're you know, they know we're small. We know we're small. We'll admit that we can fix this. And we do um, wholeheartedly. And they there's an extreme amount of forgiveness uh, for that. Um, some Sometimes. You know, when you appear too big and too good and too strong and then you mess up, it's kind of like, dude, what's your deal? Get it together, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but to say, to just kind of stand up and say, hey, let's look, we're trying, we're trying to improve, we're trying to get better, um, but we are, we're not this massive corporation. Um, people connect with that. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That if you try to become much bigger and be a you know large corporation, you become essentially less human, right? People don't see you as an individual or see you two as individuals anymore, and they are less likely to kind of hold punches and or and you know don't give you that kind of slack that they would normally give if it was a real person that they were talking face to face with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you, like you're saying, you guys were very new in the company when you went on Shark Tank. How did you, I guess, prepare to, to go on a show like that? What were you guys doing to make sure that you would have a successful appearance on the show? So one thing that we did was we um, watched every episode. We typed up every single question ever asked prior to our being on the show. And we typed out every answer. And then we memorized those answers, um, both Hannah and I, depending wow. on who was handling what. And we just practiced over and over, and we invited any friend, especially, you know, those ball-breaking friends that kind of really just, yeah. they don't, they, <laughs> they, they really want to, you know, just give it to you. Um, we, especially those folks, we invited over, did the pitch, had them ask questions that we didn't expect, and just challenged ourselves over and over and over and over again until we got it right. And so I would say we were fully prepared uh, to handle all the curveballs. Now, there are some things that came out that we had no idea, um, but we did our best. And so I think because of that, being prepared and being confident that, you know, one of those things I, 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 I will never forget before those doors, doors opened. And this was advice I got when I was at UCLA um, getting my MBA. They said, when you're going into pitch to someone you're not going to beg for money. Um, it's a fair exchange. You're going to give them 
part of your, you know, the hard work that you've put, the, your great idea, your blood, sweat, and tears, and they're going to make a nice little penny while they're sleeping, and you're going to use their money in exchange. So it's a fair exchange, and you should never look up. You should look directly at them mm, from mm-hmm. the same level. And so that really gave us the confidence that we needed to just walk in there and just talk to them as equals, because um, that's what it comes down to. Um, it's never a good look when you're begging, and I get that entrepreneurs get in a place where they're really desperate. I understand that, and you know we've had that multiple times in our journey. But when it comes down to it, you're both humans, and you're both trying to achieve the same thing. So that really helped us. Yeah, you definitely don't want to appear desperate, at least. Uh, now, when you went through, and I don't, I don't think I've even seen all of them either, but you guys went through and watched every single show and typed up all of the, the transcripts and everything. Based on what you saw, like, what are some, I guess, common mistakes that you see entrepreneurs making when they, they pitch, I guess, especially on Shark Tank that, that, that you saw and then you both looked at each other and were like, you know, we cannot make this same mistake? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> I, um, one was... A typical one that we saw was just saying, oh, this is the market size of the baby industry. And if we just capture 1%, we're billionaires, mm, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think that's, it, it's very delusional. It's, you know, I think what the companies that do well and get a deal on Shark Tank, it's it's not about what the potential is, but rather what you're actually selling and doing. Yeah. And also... I think there's there's this kind of I think arrogance is the worst is like the definitely poison pill if you're going into a pitch with a little arrogance. Confidence is okay, but arrogance is like, oh, you know, I already talked to the buyer, I got this locked up. Well, talking to a buyer and getting a program and a purchase order are two different things. I mean, even a purchase order, you know, I've got a purchase order from Target and it's great. It's a thousand door door test, you know. I I'm going to be a millionaire. I mean, those are huge, huge assumptions, you know, I mean, until you have a reoccurring sale, until you have how many units per sale per week you're, you're hitting, you're really nothing yet, you know? Um, and so I think sometimes when I see contestants or, or pitch pitches go in with that attitude, like, Oh yeah, we got target this year. Next year's Walmart. Like, no, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, there's still a very, very long road ahead of you. And, and so I think if, if people kind of take that knowledge and kind of really use it, it can be more of a weapon than it is like a deterrent, you know, because if I was an investor, I would go, you, okay, clearly you've never been through this before. So I would be, I would hesitate more. Mm, makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Mark and Hannah. Lalaland.com is a website, L-O-L-L-A-L-A-N-D.com. Where do you guys want to see the business uh, be this time next year? Oh, that's a good question. Great question. Should, should I go first? Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, we'd like to be, we'd like to have a lot more items um, to offer to our, our families, like the people that resonate with our brand that understand that we're not just a company, but we're parents too, and that everything that goes in their child's mouth went into our kid's mouth. Um, or, you know, we, we really think about our kids when we create these products. So I'd love to have a lot more stronger presence in our direct consumer portion of our business uh, a lot along with a lot more um, products to offer. Mm-hmm. And to that end, I think, you know, we've, we've worked so hard up until for the past few years to just build this sort of multi-channel distribution. And I think what I personally want to work on in the next year is just really, I mean, attacking and getting at those customers through a more 
multi-pronged approach, you know? So what I don't want to just focus all my efforts on social media. It's like, I got to do better at email marketing and, um, on top of the social media and, you know, Facebook marketing and all that stuff. Like, I really just think that there's so many avenues now for businesses to reach customers. And I hope that we can get really good at that in the next year. Awesome. It sounds like a action packed year for you guys then. Again, thank you so much for coming on Market Hand. I really appreciate it. Again, lalaland.com is the website. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Felix. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. Design is like an extra voice to have for your company. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com slash blog.